welcome back to RoyCast, the original Succession podcast. My name is Brendan. Joining me, as always, is my co-host, Gabby. Hi, Gabby. Hi, Brendan. Hi, everybody. Our guest today is a film critic and programmer who previously appeared on this program to discuss season three's Too Much Birthday. Joining us again is our friend, Madeline Wall. Hi, Madeline. Hey, everyone. Thanks for having me. Very happy to have you back. Episode seven, Return. And as we were just discussing the party one, which I'm obviously an expert in. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> chief party correspondent Our, lucky yeah. number seven exactly. uh, we were we were just discussing that i, I keep uh having to remind myself that this is a 10 episode season and not a nine episode season i'm i'm traumatized by only getting nine episodes <laughs> in season it's a three. weird yeah we still have what's it's that's going to be part of succession's legacy forever is the 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 odd kind of 39 episode count that yeah. there'll forever be it's like a, it's like the dangling modifier it's just like kind of like hanging off the edge like there's always that promise of like jesse just get the band back together do the holiday special christmas you, know, you special, want to do yeah. it come on <laughs> too much christmas writes itself yeah oh, there we go perfect. oh my, my my title was roman holiday it should be roman oh that's, good uh, that's, too. that's pretty good yeah <laughs> uh but yeah jesse you'll have to call me for the rest of that pitch okay um so we want to dive into this week's episode tons to talk about uh as usual quick plot summary uh so in tailgate party on the eve of the election, Tom and Shiv host a party for an elite group of media insiders and politicos at their three-story penthouse. Now actively plotting to undermine the Gojo deal, Ken and Roman ask Shiv to invite her ex, Nate Safrelli, to the party so that they can work his connections to the Jimenez presidential campaign and perhaps elicit a threat of regulatory interference to scare Matson off. Shiv invites Nate, but also Matson himself and guides him around the party, introducing him to important contacts. Meanwhile, Ken fumbles the entree with his old friend Nate, while Roman tries and fails to get Connor to drop out of the race on behalf of the Mencken campaign, who worry that his share of the vote will prove decisive in swing states. And Jerry tells Roman that she wants an eye-watering exit package and threatens otherwise to expose her archive of dick pics. Eventually, the Roy kids learn from Ebba, Matson's head of PR, that Gojo has been touting fraudulent subscription numbers in India, giving Ken and Roman legitimate reason to blow up the deal. Rattled, Shiv vents to an exhausted Tom and triggers a cataclysmic fight in which they air all of their grievances against each other in full view of the other partygoers. At the end of the night, Ken asks Frank to back him in a bid to acquire Gojo with himself as sole CEO. So as we're talking about episode seven, working towards the sort of final endgame arc of this season, there are certain things, I think, in a, in a season of television that feel sort of almost demanded by tempo and structure. And this episode in particular is a kind of interlude or calm before the storm, before what promises to be either furious drama or furious farce with the election episode next week. But that's not to say that nothing happens. Uh, Quite a lot happens at this party, actually, and chiefly uh, what we want to start with, I think, is this episode paying off the long-running, simmering tension between Tom and Shiv, which is where, because of the pace of the events unfolding and what we knew was still to come, I personally had just kind of taken it for granted that this was going to happen in this episode. Like, it had been kind of teased in some of the promos, and I think they needed to get it out of the way before, you know, the big plot developments to come. So I I was completely assuming that we were going to see all this bad feeling explode in this episode. And as usual, the challenge for these writers is to make that sort of promised explosion come true in a way that feels, at, 
at once both surprising and organic to these characters and their dynamic that we know so well. Uh, and in my initial viewing, and we can talk through this, this could be a discussion, but my initial viewing was kind of troubled by the thought that I wasn't sure if they totally nailed this, the final fight in particular and the way it's set up. You know, thinking back to last week's episode in Living Plus uh, and the way that these characters reunited and came back to each other in a way that I thought was funny and felt true to who they were and Tom's monologue in that episode about being a materialist that was also a declaration of his love for Shiv, it welded this genuine insight uh, to the character also owning his own greed. And I didn't quite feel the same sort of fresh insight into these characters here, where they're, they're really just laying out all the things that we already know about them at this point in the series. Of course, I'm also kind of talking about this from the perspective of a podcaster who's spent dozens of hours talking <laughs> about this dynamic. And maybe it didn't come off the same for everybody else. I, I guess we can just talk about first impressions and how this felt to everybody else. I don't want to be the, the downer here, and I want to talk through this because there's a, there's a lot to dig into in the way that this... Uh, this scene is set up and explored. I mean, Mad Madeline, what was your kind of feelings about this scene and how it how it sort of comes about in the episode? There is a kind of immediate satisfaction when that comes when like people are finally saying what's always been below the surface because that never happens with succession. Or if they do, it's like garbled and insulted and like elaborate. But I think upon rewatch and also just on like a filmmaking level, like I think the shot counter shot because um, kind of lazy. Um, there's something sort of that they're on a balcony, so they're separate. Um, it seems sort of implausible that no one in the party would notice. And it makes sense thematically that no one in the party would care. Um, but yeah, it was, I think, immediately satisfying. And then upon like you get us, you step away, you're a bit like, I don't know. Well, I mean, the, the you talk about the blocking. I thought that was, I thought that was really good. Like it's a simple, but it's a very like true insight that the way that they set up this scene where these two characters are just facing each other on this very narrow balcony. And, and that accomplishes a couple of things. There's a couple of things loaded in that setup. One, that Tom has this objective where he wants to go back inside and he wants to go to bed because he's tired. That's, been, that's what they've been establishing the entire episode. And Shiv is standing by the door and she's like, no, 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 no. You need to hear me vent and you need to validate me as you always do. And that's where his exhaustion, his frustration kind of snaps. And there's also this thought of Tom's back kind of being to this abyss where he feels like he's kind of being like backed. He's, he's being backed into a corner and almost like he's back on the yacht where in the season two finale, there was the threat that he was going to be the one kind of metaphorically thrown overboard. Like that's very present there too. I'm not sure that it's true that the people at the party don't notice. Like there's a little bit, there's like, you stay very close on their faces. We don't like really... There's no like big shot where we see like, oh, everybody has been looking at them this entire time. But you do kind of see some movement in the party that suggests that like people are definitely noticing. Um, the thing that I felt was lightly implausible with these characters would just get into it in this context. You know, I guess we're supposed to think that the emotions are so extreme that they just don't care at all. But these are people who are very, very obsessed with propriety um, and decorum and that they would have this kind of messy fight in public. Like it's dramatically like it's quite tantalizing. Um, I don't know that it felt entirely true to me. Gabby, does this sound insane to you so far? I mean, what were your initial reactions? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I don't want to, um, you know, downplay any of these critiques because they're super important. For me, like Madeline said, on first watch, it was just so exhilarating to see these two people, uh, you know, finally, um, you know, sort of uh, say what they needed to say for a long time. But it was the build up to me was a little bit odd just because of how 
um, connected they seem to be at the beginning of the episode. And, you know, of course, their reunion has been like, you know, it's been pretty steamy. And, and they were, um, you know, alluding to the, the fact that they were like, you know, having all this sex. And I wasn't sure if we were going to ever even get this scene. So I was just excited to get it. Uh, like Brandon said, some of this stuff was in like marketing materials and preview some of the lines like, um, Shiv calling him a snake and then I'm sorry that you know uh you didn't get his approval those were like I I, I'd been seeing those online for for months and I just kind of assumed the way that they had drawn out the Tom and Shiv relationship this season that you know we we just wouldn't get we just wouldn't get that because uh um you know they they throw a lot of footage away um and then you know they've also put stuff in teasers and stuff that they that they don't use so I was kind of just excited that, like, <laughs> yes, like, this is this is that fight. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. yeah it was really so, exciting. So it was exciting to get it. But, yeah, I mean, I think prodding into it a little bit more on, on rewatches for, you know, there's there's definitely a lot to talk about, I think, here. Yeah, and I think we're chiefly talking about, like, I don't think we're really talking about the performances or anything here in terms of, no. like, the, the things yeah. that we had issues with. I mean, these actors are totally, you know, like, unimpeachable when it comes to their instincts and how well... They know these characters and how well they play off each other. There's more to be said maybe about how much room the staging of the scene gives them to actually play off each other. But I think that I think the main thing that was nagging at me about this that felt off when I was initially watching it was I didn't feel like in the episode itself, like we have all this baggage over the course of the series from having watched these characters together for so long. We know all the stuff that they want to say to each other already before they say it. Uh, but in the episode, it has to feel like something something is happening that causes that pressure to build particularly in Tom who really just who really is the one who decides to let fly um in that scene and because the script is doing this thing where it's like oh Tom's tired he's getting exhausted the entire night it's giving you this reason it's hinting you it's nudging at you as if you were to say hey keep an eye on Tom his nerves are kind of fraying over the course of the party but then at the very end of the episode what seems to be kind of nagging at him is this idea that everyone in the party is talking about him losing his job. And that was the thread that I thought got kind of alighted or kind of buried. Yeah. Something happened in the editing or the scripting. Or I don't know, but that, that got lost a little bit for me. Like there's a scene where Shiv and Tom are talking to this older guy in a jacket who I don't know who he's supposed to be. He reminded me of Chris Matthews. It's, it's funny awkward. that you said Chris Matthews. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But he's very, he seems very stilted. Uh, they, they don't seem like they have any kind of relationship with him at all. Uh, but he brings up the Tom firing rumor to him and Shiv, which is the only real hint that we get that like, Oh, other people in this party who we don't know are talking about know, this. Yeah. And that scene doesn't make really much of an impression because we don't know who this person is. We don't know how he heard this. Um, I had also kind of expected that Nate being at this party would be a big factor in Tom snapping because obviously that stirs up all these feelings of sexual jealousy and, you know, the original betrayal of, you know, the open marriage uh, all the way back in season one that is the real primal scene here. Um, and I, I think that there was supposed to be, or what I, I think was missing was Nate and Matson and Shiv have that conversation where Matson says there will be changes made at ATN and Nate says, Ooh, that means that means Tom's going to have to go. But there's a missing link there where we see like Nate spreading that rumor or rather we don't see that, right? Like that would have been the thing I think for me yeah. that would have, that would have tied the thread between like Tom's sexual jealousy and his anxiety about the relationship right. and his anxiety about his career and given like a reason to feel that there was a building momentum and pressure, but that, that, that was missing here. And so when, 
he says like oh everybody's talking about this at the end i'm like oh are they i had kind of forgotten about that or i didn't yeah, realize that was happening the, the, the scene you're talking about with um mattson talking to nate and shiv is there and then you know they talk about changes at atn if and tom is kind of looking on like from a distance almost like he knows you know because greg is like oh what are they talking about he's like they're just talking greg and and there's this look on his face like we're supposed to know that he knows what they're talking about but it, it didn't really come across that way and i also missed um on first view the 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 chris matthews thing so so it was kind of lost to me on on first watch that tom was supposedly uh just like getting more progressively irritated that everyone apparently including shiv was talking about his imminent termination um you know they focus also on so like on on how tired he was and he says early in the episode to shiv you know well if you weren't like keeping me up all night which is odd like you're you're cranky and tired okay because you've been up having sex with your wife um but why are you you know why are you mad about it why is he so mad that he's tired didn't really make sense to me you know like they had the tom bringing her the you know breakfast in bed and the polling early um all that like heavy sexting were we supposed to think that he just wasn't as into it as she was like he seemed very enthralled by their reunion and we sort of just lose track of him at the party like who cares if you're tired tom you know everybody's tired we'll just take a line of cocaine or something and um, it seems like they wanted to tell us that over the course of the night, Tom was realizing that despite like the newfound physical excitement with Shiv, that his social and emotional dynamic with her is ultimately always going to return to this disappointing status quo where she's willing to throw him under the bus. Um, but I'm not sure that I, you know, that that I that I fully got that. Um, even though it would have been a good, you know, compelling pretext for a fight. Um. It's um, also interesting because as head of ATN, this should be his night. Like he's having the party at their house. Right. And he yells everyone he's like, all these in the fight, he's like, all these people in my house, that this should be the night of his triumph, you know? And instead, yeah. people don't respect him. Everyone's making jokes about him being fired. Um, so right. it seems like, he's yeah, like once again, when he has everything, he just is still the he one there, everyone like disposing of immediately. He even lets Kendall give the speech. And I understand this is uh, supposed to be like Logan's party. Like this is a party he threw before every election. Um, but yeah, like he kicks it to Kendall to give the speech. <laughs> I did notice that Kendall thanked Shiv at the end for use of their apartment, didn't thank Tom. Maybe that's something that irritated him. But again, like they just they weren't really getting that stuff across. So Tom, who's kind of not had the richest season for him in terms of material so far, but you would think with this election and, and with all this, uh, you know, all these these polls and, and media people here that this would really have been like, um, you know, a heavy Tom episode. And of course, this fight was obviously compelling and resonated with a lot of people. And there were some lines that that came across as like true daggers. But um, yeah, it was it was a little bit odd how he kind of got a tad lost in that party. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of really smart stuff in the writing that I want to I want to talk about more. I, I do like the thread you're, you're teasing out where despite Tom ostensibly being like the head of ATN in this position of relevance. He seems very irrelevant at this party. It has yeah. me kind of thinking of how <laughs> Tom getting that position as chair of Global News was supposed to be this big win for him, but instead it kind of seems like instead Sid is the real power at ATN, and Tom is just held up as this like convenient scapegoat where it's like, oh, people don't like ATN. Well, we can fire Tom if you like. We'll fire Tom if that will make you happy. Right. <laughs> like he's always just being offered. It's like, oh, here's someone we can. He's he's put in that position almost so he can be sacrificed later is how it kind of feels at this yeah. point. Yeah. Um. But I mean the 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 fuse that gets lit, I think, for 
the relationship kind of collapsing in this episode is that gift that he gives Shiv of the of the scorpion. It's like a, it's like a gem encased scorpion, and I, I, so I, it, weird. <laughs> it's a great it's a great gesture because yeah, it's very weird. You have to think about like what is what is wrong with the psychologies of these people that they would think yeah. that's a cool gift at all. But you can understand it too because from Tom's point of view, it's like okay. Because he's somebody who's constantly like making accommodations and making adjustments and like, okay, I can compromise on whatever as long as it keeps me close to where I want to be. You know, it keeps me in my marriage. It keeps me close to the seat of power. It keeps me rich. Uh, so he's constantly thinking about, okay, I can accommodate to this new status quo in the relationship. And after last episode and after Bitey and everything, he's like, okay, so we have this new kind of fun, sexy, angry dynamic where we fight all the time and we hurt each other, but that's just what we get off on. And that's what's going to keep us together. And so I'm going to give her this fun gift. That's like, Hey, we're scorpions and we sting each other. Um, but Shiv actually doesn't think of it that way. Because that kind of puts them on even on like level terms. And I don't think Shiv knows how to be in a relationship that's on like an even playing field. Like she either has to be, you know, she either has to be like stepping on him to climb over him to get to something, or she has to be being hurt by somebody else to feel like she's like she has something to fight for. You know, and she doesn't like specifically, as we've talked about before, one of her biggest emotional psychological triggers is the guilt that she's constantly suppressing over how she treats Tom in this relationship. She doesn't like thinking of herself as a predator or as somebody who's caused him pain. And right. so she copes with that the way that she always does, which is by chasing power and stepping on his face to get it. Uh, that's what she does over the course of the party. And I think what the episode is intending to do is it's intending to establish this party as just like, you know, a crucible where all of the things that Tom doesn't like or is uncomfortable with about their relationship just kind of nag at him over the course of the evening, the way that his wife treats him, the way that he's He's in this position of power at ATN nominally, but he's not respected for it. You know, the way that her like past partners and like a, somebody she's kind of flirting with and Matson at the party are being like paraded around in front of him. Yeah, it is something that like could plausibly lead to that to that breaking point, whether or not we feel like, you know, the, in the shape of the episode as it ended up, that was kind of allegedly drawn out for the viewer. Yeah, what really struck me with the scorpion gift was actually um, the scorpion and the frog fable, where... A mm -hmm. scorpion needs to cross the river, so he asks the frog to help him. And the frog's like, no way, you'll just kill me. And the scorpion's like, no, no, I won't, because if I do, we'll both drown. So they're halfway across the river, and then the scorpion stabs the frog. The frog goes, why? And the scorpion goes, it's just my nature. Um, or as been has been deployed in memes, lol, lameo, um, which I think are equally <laughs> profound. Um, it's sort of fun eventually, like we had an agreement, even though you were a threat, I thought you wouldn't hurt me because we had this agreement, but in the end, you'd rather we just both go down together. Matt, don't be angry if I dub over you, uh, Forrest Whitaker telling that story in the crying game. <laughs> That's his fine. terrible, terrible copy accent. You could also do, um, Orson Welles. So you have a lot of options. Oh, there you go. Yeah. I'll, yeah. I'll let you choose. Do you want to be Orson Welles or Forrest Whitaker? <laughs> Uh, Sophie's choice. So what's that supposed to mean? Means what it says. A scorpion does what is in its nature. But I mean, the the scene itself. I mean, you know, once they once they get out there and they're kind of like letting it fly. Um, one of the other things I was just kind of missing in that dialogue again is it just kind of feels too clean. Almost, again, we know these characters so well that we kind of know all the things they want to say to each other, and they just kind of say them all here, and, and you know, they phrase them quite simply and devastatingly, which is pretty smart, you know, in a lot of cases. Like, they don't, like, overwrite it a ton. There are, like, certain phrases that Tom has that feel, like, accidentally profound, 
like when he tells Shiv, like you're too transparent to find in a book. Um, like that seems it's that's not a phrase he was he was thinking of. He just kind of lets it fly, and it's like, well, that doesn't actually make any sense on its face, <laughs> but it's it kind of lands, you know, it it, it hits her really it hard. Is, yeah. Um, and I like the little bits where like something hits them and they don't know how to react to it and they slip into in Tom's case HR speak where or PR speak where he she calls his family striving and parochial and he says well that's not a fair characterization. Well, you guys had something a little earlier before we get into the dialogue about um, just the that I'm that I'm curious about because you two are are more obviously much more well versed in in the filmmaking of it all. Oh, the shot counter shot. Well, yeah, yeah we we talked. Well, yeah, we talked about that a, a little bit, but I mean, I was I was also thinking of, and again, I don't want to be in the situation where we're just constantly comparing this great show to other, you know, great shows. But you know, I I I mean, I think when you're watching this from a perspective as a TV viewer, you know, like the high sort of watermark you think of for this kind of scene is is white caps, is the confrontations. There's like two com- major confrontations that episode between uh, Tony and Carmela and The Sopranos. And those scenes just have so much, like, they cover so much ground, like, spatially, like, in their house when he's, like, chasing her around and stuff. And uh, the threat of just, like, you know, physical danger is obviously, like, very present. And, like, that doesn't make, that doesn't make sense for Succession, where, like, we're never, like, afraid that, like, Tom is going to hit Shiv or something like that. But there's just so much, like, movement. And there's so much, like, there's so much more space for the actors to kind of play off each other. That yeah, it did strike me thinking about those scenes uh, opposite each other. How this one just kind of turns into like a, a volley back and forth, where they're just kind of batting the ball back at each other. The like again, the actors like they play that hurt, and they know how to play like which lines are really landing with each other, and which ones they like know are gonna sting the most, and so they almost regret saying them as they say. Like you can see Tom kind of regret saying that Shiv shouldn't have children as he says it. Um, but he can't stop himself. Uh, they all they know how to play that so well. There's just, but yeah, it's very limited the amount that they're able to actually play in the space um, was something else I felt here. Yeah, and it's also not a choice because have we ever been on this balcony before this episode? I know they're part. They're tri- apparently triplex so. is like a mystery no. to all of us. Um, <laughs> and it's interesting because they're cut off from the political world and actually having to face like the public. Um, and I know when those controlling the narrative videos, Snarestook talked about how like their fight would echo out into all these other buildings, but I had no sense of that while watching the right. episode, like really just kind of felt just them and that weird mushroom lamp. I don't know. I think uh, so much of the performances here involve so much physicality. Obviously, um, Kieran is the best at that, but I also think, I don't know, it, it felt like kind of a missed opportunity. Um, but I did think, I don't know, I, I think with, um, McFadden's performance, the way he says, love you, prison and baby are the exact same. And those are the words he says the loudest. Mm-hmm. Um, and you imagine hearing those ones echo across this, you know, expensive New York neighborhood. Yeah, it's interesting. It makes me think of later in the episode when when Matson calls, looks down and calls it Legoland, like it's all fake. There's nobody really there. Um, it's it, so it's an interesting choice for them to have that fight. I didn't notice anybody in the background picking up on them fighting. Um, not that they would show us like a bunch of people yeah. gawking yeah. and pointing. There, there are a couple of shots when they get really tight on Shiv. Yeah. You, you look okay. in the background, it's like out of focus, but you can see people yeah. like turning towards the glass. You know, like there's a, definitely a sense that people are looking. It's not like strong, but it's there. Yeah. Some of the, one of the lines that stuck out for me because Tom says it twice, um, you know, he says sort of in a very exasperated tone, you'll be fine. You'll always be fine when Shiv starts complaining about Matson and that she might have, you know, made a mistake. 
Um, then they fight a little bit more. And he says, you will be okay because you're a tough fucking bitch who will always survive because she does what she needs. And um, I don't know. That was kind of interesting. Like that, that, like, like Brendan said, some of the lines here felt, um, it felt like a little too, too cleanly written. Um, but, but that one, um, Shiv, Shiv accuses him of projecting, which is kind of funny um, because I think they're both sort of projecting throughout. Yeah, I don't think of Tom as a tough fucking bitch, personally. <laughs> yeah, and um, yeah. Well, right. she's more responding to the like the do whatever you need thing. Yeah. Do whatever you need, I think, version. is the yeah. yeah. <laughs> Unless, um, but yeah, like they're 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 both obviously feeling aggrieved. It's 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 a little hard to to shift into this like mode when when they had this like you know really, um, you know, kind of interesting reunion in L.A. and then. You know, early in this episode, we're supposed to think that they're sort of enthralled to each other, like sexually. They're, you know, they're back in, you know, <laughs> back in the saddle. There's this thing called um, hysterical bonding that happens sometimes in cases of infidelity, where um, after somebody is unfaithful in a partnership, in a monogamous partnership, um, you know, you fight and you whatever, whatever, and then you have like a lot of really really intense sex and it's, it's sort of a way to to like reclaim that person um and, and in in this case like both of both shiv and tom at this point have had sex with other people as you know while they've been married shiv of course it was a little bit different it was um before they were separated but it kind of seemed to me like after this fight okay maybe that's what was going on here with the sex that there was just um you know they, they do have this physical chemistry that i think is very strong um, I think it's always been strong. I think we 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 got glimpses of it uh, in season one for sure. Like if you think of Shiv climbing on top of Tom after the vote of no confidence episode before she before she finds out, um, they have a they definitely you know have a, a a sexual relationship that is key to their marriage. And so you know I think maybe they they both kind of fooled themselves into thinking um, you know well if we just have a lot of great sex and accept that we're gonna hurt each other then uh, you know you know, we'll be fine. <laughs> um, and then, you know, of course, it never ends up, you know, working out this, this hysterical bonding because, um, you know, that's, that's the kind of stuff that you can't get over. But of course, there's way more in Shiv and Tom's relationship besides infidelity that they are not over. Well, and, you know, Shiv has the problem that I think Tom reads very accurately where it's like she has difficulty thinking about other people. You know, yeah. she has difficulty doing anything but sort of like, anxiously worrying about her own situation and how much status she has in the lives of people right. that she's worried about. Um, and Tom, meanwhile, we talked a moment ago about how he's always accommodating and making compromises in order to stay where he wants to be. Uh, but he keeps, I think, bumping up against the inconvenient fact that he does have things that he doesn't want to compromise on. He does have things that he wants that are not money. Like he wants a partner who loves him and he wants a family. You know, he yeah. wants... You know, Shiv calls him a conservative hick at one point, which is very funny because it's in response to him saying you ran off to fuck the phone book. And she's like, yeah. oh, you're a conservative hick. It's like it's conservative that he doesn't want his partner to, to, to right. cheat on him. Right. <laughs> but like that's like that's very funny. And there, but there is also that edge there where it's like, yeah, because that, as you say, like he does like really bellow that line like you won't have my baby. I mean, it's a big thing for him obviously but there is also as we've talked about so many times this expectation just like of married couples in this world that they're gonna have children and obviously we get the sense that shiv and tom like 
did not really uh, come to an agreement on a lot of things before their marriage, right? Like there was a whole bit in one of the early episodes about their prenup uh, that his yeah. mom called kind of unconscionable. Uh, they, they, they they were not on the same page about basically anything, you know, in particular, you know, we get the sense about, you know, whether they would, they would start a family together. Um, so that's a, that's a big deal for Tom. And uh, obviously like that leads us into the other sort of like unexploded landmine in this season, which is the revelation of Shiv's pregnancy, which we found out in an interview with, co-director Sherry Springer Berman this week and, uh, and with Robert Pulcini, the other co-director that they had not written in the pregnancy storyline at this point in the season uh, that they <laughs> made that decision later. And as we kind of suspected at the time, that scene in honeymoon States in episode four uh, was, open, was yeah. something they had written earlier and inserted back in, which is very obvious in hindsight because it's a scene that's on a closed set with one actor. That's very easy to just kind of paste into an earlier episode. Uh, but I thought, you know, like, but like, knowing if we had known that at the time, because it wasn't clear when we saw that whether they had written that in to incorporate Snook's real life pregnancy or whether that was their original plan for the season. Uh, it, knowing that now, after we've seen the subsequent episodes, uh, I think it was a great decision because it's kind of amazing how well it dovetails with what they were already doing with the characters. Like, I'm sure that like in the editing, they reshaped certain things and certain storylines to sort of make that unstated knowledge like kind of hit harder you know like if we didn't have that knowledge this would still be a very eloquent story about she sort of like confronting a future without her father and what her place in the world is when her marriage is collapsing you know worries that you know like without status or without the kind of corporate power that she covets that she just becomes a sort of lonely bitter woman like her mother uh that's that would still have a lot of emotional potency and it, it's it's very graceful the way the show just like neatly just kind of like drops in that knowledge and lets it just sit as subtext under all these scenes. Uh, I can't believe how well that how well that has been working. I think it was a so far it seems like a, a very good sort of like fertile creative decision. Yeah, and they're they're handling it quite deftly as as we knew they would. But it was it, you know it's always a concern with something like that that has the potential to 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 be very you know Jay or just overly saccharine and and. Who knows what could happen with a pregnancy storyline, but but um, it was it's so interesting that they they kept this. Um, and people have just been speculating for like months and weeks about about all of this. I love I love how they keep secrets on the show. It's amazing. But um, yeah, I think I think that moment when when Tom says that you know she wouldn't be a good parent was the big like everybody every viewer was like holding their breath like is she is this gonna be the moment um that Shiv says it because it would be a great way to make him feel guilty in that moment, but. Um, she doesn't quite get there. And then, of course, those comments from Tom reflect her mother's comments in, in the Chianti Shire conversation, which, is, uh, you know, it's it's a very, very uh, raw wound for Shiv. And then, of course, the fact that she actually is pregnant in that moment, um, you know, quite devastating. Yeah, the two lines that seem to hit Shiv the hardest are that one and then the follow up when Tom says, you know, I've given you endless approval and it doesn't fill you up because you're broken. He makes that. That's a good bit of that physical gesture. acting from McFadden. Yeah. He makes that like breaking gesture with his fists. Um, oh, good. And, you know, because that's that's where because that's where Shiv finds herself kind of at a loss for words, because and to the first comment, she just says, well, that's not very nice to say. And to the other, she she can only <laughs> think to say, I don't like you. And then she starts crying and she's like, I don't even care about you. And it's like, <laughs> standing here crying and <laughs> I don't believe you. <laughs> a lot of like really great 
written lines that the writers have such a strong understanding of these characters. The, th the thing I was just kind of missing in this scene is what Succession is often so good at is characters being like kind of expressively inarticulate, you know, because I think that one of the truths of these situations is that obviously when you stew over things like this in a relationship for so long, you know, like you are thinking of the thing to s that you wish you could say for so long. So sometimes you are really ready to l let it fly. But also sometimes in that moment, you find that the line you thought of is not quite as eloquent as you thought it was, or it doesn't come out the way you intended because you're so angry in that yeah. moment. Um, the this, this show is often like really good at this. You know, it, it, it's played very, as very straight drama, this scene, because the show has, has earned it. Um, but, I, but, but, I, I, but I love when they also find a way to show the truth of these kind of conflicts in the ways that people, people don't quite manage to say everything that's on their mind, even when they really want to. Yeah, it was a good balance of, you know, I don't, you know, I don't like you being inarticulate, but also the most devastating thing she could say. Like, it does need to be something so basic as whether I like my spouse or not. Especially because so much of this party was Tom feeling that no one likes him. Yeah, yeah, that he's not useful. Yeah. Well, and right before they go out to the balcony, there's that bit where Tom says, like, everybody's talking about how I'm going to get fired. And Roman's like, oh, no, I have faith in you, man. And Ken's like, yeah, you've always been a loyal servant. Always been a loyal servant. So condescending. <laughs> well, it's true. Without Logan, like, <laughs> what does Tom have? I mean, I guess he's trying to get his relationship back, but so much of his story, uh, you know, revolved around Logan for the for the last, you know, season or so. And um yeah, I mean it it's it's again just like it, it, with Logan's absence, where where does somebody like Tom stand? You know, we, we we've seen people in Logan's orbit completely disappear, like Carrie, who, you know, had nothing on paper, so to speak. Tom has this ATN job, but um, you know, he, he really has been Logan's servant and uh you wonder you know, I mean, I think he really is wondering, like, he, he called Logan his protector, right? When when Logan died. Um, I think Tom maybe feels like, you know, who the hell is looking out for me now? You know, Sid Peach hates him. Um, you know, is the Shiv relationship is falling apart. Uh, he doesn't have any other family that, that, you know, around. I mean, Greg, who knows? I mean, those two are, you know. He can always use him as a punching bag and maybe for some emotional support. But I think Tom is, uh, uh, yeah, you know, feeling feeling a little bit adrift in the world since Logan's dying. Danny said something interesting last week when he was talking about how you can't really root for any of the characters on Succession, uh, which I know a lot of people disagree with because obviously people have their camps and there are people who watch the show and do power rankings and all this junk. Um, but I think I think what I agreed with and what I what I understood him to be uh, when he said that was that like. If you watch the show as a tragedy, you know, which as I do, uh, then I, I don't think the thing that you're rooting for is like for people to like get good outcomes, right? Or for people to like better themselves or things like that. That's not really what you are anticipating or wanting to happen in a tragic narrative. Even if you sympathize like quite deeply with the characters, like I feel very deeply for so many of the characters on this show, but I'm not like rooting for them to like better themselves or anything like that. What you're rooting for in a tragedy, rooting being kind of a crude word here, but like what you're what you're anticipating to happen by the end of the narrative is some kind of moment of like self-understanding or like self-recognition, which often in a tragedy, it comes at the worst moment or it comes when it's exactly too late and their fate is sealed. Or like we've talked about like like Oedipus comes up on the show a lot as one of the, the great classical tragedies. 
And that's a story that is all about this process of kind of self-discovery and investigation where the main character, he does not understand something about himself. He's investigating something. And it's in understanding that thing about himself, about his nature and who he is and how he came to be where he is, that kind of seals his downfall, that self-knowledge. And it's why I think about like one of the emblematic scenes of the show being uh, the boardroom coup in season one that ends with Kendall in the street and there's that just brilliant gesture where strong turns to the camera and he gives that sort of like dry chuckle where it's like okay i get it there is a joke and it's on me you know the where you can see the kind of design of your fate and so i think the thing we've been anticipating for shiv is that she is going to have that moment of understanding at one point and that tom would be the conduit for it and i feel like this scene like it it, it mostly fulfills that you know because you see her, the, the thing that actually is really well drawn out in this episode is how desperate Shiv is for like something, some sort of status or validation that she's seeking from, from Matson at this party. And when that all starts to unravel for her, she goes to the person that she thinks is her safe space, who's always going to validate her and worship her. And instead, he just, you know, he reads her everything that is wrong with her. This kind of feels like the thing that we had been wanting to, to happen for Shiv, to have some of that self-knowledge finally reflected back at her in a way that she couldn't evade or suppress. Logic, cried the dying frog as he started underbearing the scorpion down with him. There is no logic in this. I know, said the scorpion, but I can't help it. It's my character. Should we talk about the rest of the uh, the tailgate party? And uh, I, I don't know what you guys thought about how uh, how the party looked to you. Something that struck me in like some of the early scenes, like when Kendall's giving his toast and when people are arriving and stuff, it's like there's no music playing. Yeah, <laughs> I always like a little bit later. I I I was rewatching it specifically paying attention. To this. There is background music in some of the scenes. I was like, okay, uh, but I was like, this is this a party where there's literally no music? Because I would be losing my mind. It's just like yeah. awful DC people standing around eating American flag sliders, American flag slider. the little like French fries and stuff. I'm just like, that's terrible. It's like, isn't this supposed to be like a fancy? Like, aren't Shiv and Tom supposed to be like wine snobs and all this stuff? And they're just serving this like awful kitschy like snack food and stuff that's this is like a terrible party man i would yeah hate to we, be we, here. We, we we need a little snapshot of how logan used to throw this party and what it looked like um well he probably had the I cheeseburgers mean, that actually feels like a very logan detail i'm sure he would have had the burger sliders i mean shiv and tom don't know how to have fun you know so uh it, it's not surprising that a party at their apartment would look like this dry especially a political party even though it doesn't have to i mean it, it it looks the most fun, honestly, like uh, when the Swedes are sitting around sharing a vape, like <laughs> that's like the most exciting that this party gets. In, in the, in the conversation pit. <laughs> in the conversation. I kind of love it. Yeah. This. Yeah. I, I need like a 3D walkthrough of this triplex. We've spent a lot of time here now and like we're never at Kendall's house. We're never at Roman's house, but we've been at Shiv and Tom's house a lot now. Um, yeah, because they have the most sort of like domestic psychodrama unfolding all the time. And yet right. I had never clocked that it was actually three stories. I guess no. we had seen that there were two staircases. Have we the seen two staircases. two staircases? Did we see that yeah. in the premiere? Yeah, I, just, I don't in know. In the I premiere, yeah. I just didn't was... clock that. Uh, but but yeah, like that's massive. It was, it was funny when you were talking, Matt, earlier about the their argument echoing around to the other apartments. And I was like, well, those penthouses just sit empty and they're just like yeah. places yeah, where like exactly. real estate like, builders echoing. park it's their empty. fortunes. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And um, 
Mondale. Yeah, they had Mondale locked up in in the cloakroom. Oh yeah, I was I thinking about that. I was like, where is Mondale during all this? Free Mondale. Which is which is where Tom ended up sleeping at the end of the episodes and in, in that coat room with yeah. Mondale. Yeah, interesting kind of party. I don't know. I we we don't really get much of the history here, but there's obviously like you know certain things that people are are uh, aware of that we're not like when Kendall makes the comment about the the kettle corn and like everyone starts laughing uh like that's like some you know everybody's laughing thing. so knowingly at all his jokes it's so <laughs> yeah. insufferable it's so, so weird. Uh, yeah I just wanted to talk in kind of like broad broad strokes talk about like the import of this setting and yeah. what it kind of means for the show like we'll we'll see how this ages but the conceit of this particular kind of like tailgate party this pre-election party I think it frames the show's understanding of its political reality in an interesting way. And like it operates on a few levels. And the first most superficial one is just that like this is a party where you have quote unquote both sides of the aisle coming together to fraternize. It suggests that, you know, as is often said at bottom, the two major political factions in American life are, you know, at are are the same. That they they both have this commonality, they both protect capital, whatever you want to call it. Um, it's easy to feel like, as these characters, as many of these characters seem to, the outcome of the election actually doesn't matter when everybody's going to the same party. You know, Kendall in that toast, he says, he's "Like this, you know, we're all gonna st- we're all gonna stay sane and we're all gonna stay friends." And it's like, yeah, right. man, yeah, we know that's, <laughs> that's <laughs> we, we know that. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, uh, there's a couple of lines that spoke to that that were pretty funny um, when they're talking about like who's around um kendall says there's also the venture capital dems and center schools dad's ideological range is wide um he also says to roman later i'll hit the libtards you go help the nazis like it's just it's it's a game it's a rootin' tootin <laughs> super fun fucking game for the whole fucking family um you know even kendall telling roman like who cares fuck that guy if Mencken wins um you know, was very telling because it's like the night before the election and, um, you know, they're on all these maneuvers, but it doesn't actually like really matter to them who wins. Um, it's hilarious. And, and, and I think this election obviously means something more to Roman because Mankin was kind of a W for him, you know, something that that uh, he managed to pull off and impress dad with back in uh, the What It Takes episode. But um functionally it's kind of it's just like a football game to them and then that got me thinking like is that why they call this the tailgate party because it's because yeah why the hell are they calling this a tailgate party you know tailgate for me in my mind is just like you know you're in a parking lot a college football game barbecuing and drinking like obviously not what they're doing but but this is a in in every way uh this episode like you see kendall in so many situations uh like looking over at 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 interactions that are happening and and dynamics that are happening just like you know and 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 seizing upon them for his own opportunities afterwards and we'll get into that but um yeah for for something that's supposed to be so serious in the way that they you know have talked and mentioned that you know oh like i I recalled a line from the premiere which says you know it's we have an election coming up it's 1933 and i want to say i want to have a say um, there's all this drama built up around this election because apparently, you know, this Mankin candidate, as we know from what it takes, is very, very extreme. But, you know, to these people, you know, it's not going to materially change their lives in any way, shape or form. And, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a important message to, to send about American politics. And I think, you know, they they did so pretty well here without, well, I mean, without they... um, going too hard on, you know, on it either. 
the idea that it's not going to change these people's lives like it's kind of that's kind of true and it isn't because the other level that the that the episode kind of operates on is the sense that these characters again very appropriate for a tragic story they are kind of unaware of what's actually happening around them right mm -hmm. and that's the other that's the that's another layer to shiv and tom having this argument where it's like everybody can kind of see them from the outside and think things that had been private kind of spilling out into public sort of spheres being punctured you know there is a sense that these characters are kind of losing their grip on the actual stakes everybody's laughing very knowingly at all these jokes everybody's very chummy and when Kendall gives that statement about how we're all going to be friends, the thing he says before that is like, it's a tough one, alluding to, you know, because all these references the show is making to the character of this particular election cycle, we're all just filling in in our minds as viewers with like the Trump years and referring to this coarser and more fraught character of the cycle. But, you know, despite that intention for everybody to stay friendly and the premise that both sides have shared interests there is this simmering awareness throughout the night that actually something does feel different here and some of that is is starting to break through and you know nate being at this party he serves this kind of important symbolic function where he's the one person who seems rather uncomfortable with the actual idea of it you know nate being somebody i don't think many viewers have particularly fond feelings for but it has been established that he's a little bit closer to his ideals right he said that he was with gill because he actually believed in his platform and, you know, he ends up leaving the party because, as he tells Ken, he's, he's not comfortable. And it's right after he leaves that we get a scene where, where Connor and Willa are talking about Mencken and they're talking about this disturbing incident of political violence where a campaign office is being firebombed by Mencken supporters. And Willa is worried because all her friends and family hate Mencken. And some of that, that outside stuff that, like, doesn't affect people in this sphere is starting to actually seep through to them there's a sense that actually they won't be able to escape it for for much longer or for, or for as long as they thought that made me think of um last week joy the studio execs complaints to roman about atn's rightward turn as if atn like hasn't always been a right-wing news organization and uh it was sort of similar in the trump years where like public facing respectable types were like oh shit this rhetoric is a little too hot i need to distance myself from it um so much of the complaints about Trump were, were about presentation um, and, you know, whether he was palatable to respectable types and, and the harshness of his public rhetoric was, you know, just a bridge too far, even though it's all a fair reflection of what most GOP voters think privately. And, uh, you know, yeah, the Mencken fascist stuff was all laid out pretty clearly in what it takes and has you know, been brought up a few more times. So, you know, we, we have a sort of an idea where it's headed and it definitely reflects the Trump years. Yeah, so much of this party felt about, historically been about Logan Roy flexing his power. Like, I'm going to get everyone who matters the night before the election, when they all have things to do, right. come to this miserable party where we eat sliders and you can win kettle corn. Like, it's very <laughs> much about, like, this is how powerful I am. I can make them all have a bad time. So now that you have the children taking it over, and I think so much of the drama from this, from this season after Logan passing has been, his, and actually maybe the whole show, is the children trying to perform power without really understanding what it is or how he got it. Like, think about, I guess, a couple episodes ago where Rowan was like, can you just pretend I'm as good as my dad? Like, can you just say that? Right. And it's like, no, no one can because there are real stakes and there are real consequences now. Um, and how, you know, the, the going back and forth about the election and how, like, for that, but how them is it real and doesn't really matter, but you have, like, how much of their life is affected by manipulating stock and what the voters are doing and like you actually can't control the masses no matter high up your how high up your apartment is 
Yeah, and I mean, that leads into the other third layer, I think, of what the show is trying to say about these people and about the moment they're in, which is that I think very key to the show's worldview is that these characters, like the Roys, they are not actually in control of the world. They are not actually the movers and shakers. They are not the power brokers. They are not the ones pulling the levers of history. Um, they are kind of acting out on prescribed pathways, kind of as I've, kind of as you're talking about, Madeline. Like there's this theme in the season, like all the characters are like trying to do things that they think Logan would do, right, without really knowing why. The, and you know, Living Plus was in large part, I think, about Ken sort of backing into Logan's worldview, but like finding his own way into it. Um, sort of becoming his father, but approaching it through his own sort of messianic delusions and his sentimentality, you know? And I think increasingly, I think it's very meaningful that that last scene with Logan and his children takes place in that karaoke bar because, like, the idea of them doing karaoke and, like, mimicking and mimicry, I think is very key. Like, these people are actually not making their own decisions. And one of the other key images from the show is at the very end of the first season finale, what we talked about is the show's kind of godfather moment where Kendall is led out of that room where the door closes and Logan is sealed within that chamber is like the room where decisions are actually made and where Kendall's fate is decided and him being sort of like permanently shut out of that. And the whole series is about him trying to kind of get into that room. Um, but what we sort of find out is that is that there is no kind of accessing that. They, these characters are not capable of getting to a place where they can actually make their own independent decisions. They are, they are boxed in to, you know, doomed to kind of travel the same circles as the people who came before them. And I think that is Armstrong's perspective on history and on world power, this sort of deterministic, materialist worldview uh, that I think you could sometimes view as letting characters off the hook. Like if we believe that these characters actually don't have, you know, free will, they actually can't make their own decisions, you know, does that mean they're not morally culpable for their actions? I personally don't think those are the same thing. I think you can still be morally accountable for the things that you do, even if, you know, you're not capable uh, effectively of making the right decisions. You know, it's, I think what drama and tragedy do and what this show is very good at doing is showing that these characters do have alternate paths available to them. They're like, there are other things that they could do. You know, they could get rid of their riches. You know, Kendall could take accountability for his crime. You know, there are things that they could do. Um, but like practically, because of everything that makes them who they are, that shapes them, all the forces that act on them, you know, they're not like, it's not like impossible that they could make those decisions, but functionally, it kind of feels that way, right? You know, whether you want to call that uh, ideology, capitalist ideology, or their generational trauma, or the unaccountable whims of the algorithm. I like that line in particular in, in Kendall's speech where he says, we watch history, we make history, and then one day we become it. I thought that was very apt. I don't know if he got that from somewhere. It kind of feels like too yeah, eloquent it, for Kendall. It but it's a very, eloquent. Yeah. But it's a very good like <laughs> statement of the show because I think he means it in a way that like feeds his own delusions about like being a history maker being a change maker and not just like that you are kind of doomed to repeat uh, the failures of the people that came before you. Yeah. And how I think also they don't really seem to have any strong personal political opinions. Like, you right. know, Oh, we just support Mencken for this, whatever. Like they, they, they actually don't care because it doesn't affect yeah. them. I mean, Shiv, Shiv, Shiv pretends to a little yeah. bit. Yeah. And honestly, yeah. maybe at some point she did. 
Um, right. Uh, I think that's possible. But I think about, you know, like in that room, the 40 of the most important people in the world who are the ones that are going to decide the election and like none of the siblings talk to them. They just care about, you know, their deal and Matson and all their own drama, which, you know, it's both extremely important, but also very much just drama. I mean, that's so apparent, like when you just look at like the other personalities at this party, who we barely learn yeah. anything about. Right. But yeah. like the sense of, again, the sense that these people are not actually you know, the people who pull the levers of world power is so apparent when you look at, like, Carly Flight, the pod goddess, or whoever the fuck that's supposed to be. Like, <laughs> these are the elites of the elites that are in this room. Like, it's so apparent that this is just, like, a media apparatus that's completely, like, vestigial to the actual apparatus of the American state uh, of global power. Yeah, I thought with, with the political story this season that we would kind of get to know some more characters in that world analogs perhaps and like maybe this was an opportunity for that but yeah we don't we don't really learn much about anybody there and i mean i think that's by design who knows maybe we will in in the election episode um get a little bit more in terms of um just just sort of like the contours of a of a succession vision of of politics just so interesting because um you know, Jesse is British and, and their system is so different. And, um, you know, it's, they've had to sort of be very, very careful and delicate about the way that they've handled the political stuff, I think, without, um, you know, succumbing to, you know, anything that feels too on the nose and so forth. I think, I think that they've been um, pretty restrained about it. And, uh, you know, that's probably for the best. I mean, do you feel like it kind of makes sense? Like, we've all been, like, joking and, like, venting privately about how annoyed we are that it seems like a lot of Justin Kirk material is being left on the cutting room floor. He's in the yeah. credits for this episode, even though we don't see him. So it seems like there was some material here that potentially got cut. Um, but it actually kind of makes sense, like, as we're talking through the show's approach to the storyline. I think it's very effective the way that they just keep, like, sort of laying out little pieces of information about, like, how the election's going and how things are kind of, like, seems like, it seems like this is really important. It seems like things are getting really bad uh, without actually bringing Kirk into, you know, again, it's a great performance and subtle in many ways, but it's also, like, we don't need, like, a figure of, like, villainous menace, you know, to remind us the, of the actual stakes here because the, vi the viewer yeah. can very much fill all that in for themselves. Like, your imagination kind of does the work. Like, we all know what these people are referring to when they sort of make allusions mm -hmm. to what the state of the outside world is and we know what it means that these characters don't seem that concerned about it we learned a, a couple more things about the election we also learned that jimenez's running mate is gill uh which i thought was interesting that potentially implies something about you know gill's kind of wheeler dealer tendencies you know he, he struck a deal at the convention or something like that to get himself on the ticket you know he's not a he's not quite a pure ideologue he, he likes staying close to power gill does um yeah, but uh, but Bogosian didn't come back for this season, unfortunately, which uh, might be a tip off about how this how uh, how next week's election is going to go. The, there are a couple of campaign slogans that are glimpsed. Jared Menken's campaign slogan is "America strong and free," okay, and Jimenez's is "Let's do this," which I thought was just like cartoonishly <laughs> terrible. <laughs> like that's like a very like thick of it veep joke. Like <laughs> Selena Meyer's yeah. campaign slogan was "Continuity with change," which is amazing. That's kind of how Kendall. Uh himself right it reads well to the board it's, right? it's yeah sable with a vibey new banner that's continuity with yeah. change yeah. okay yeah um, so uh shitty shitty party not surprising 
Um, well, we're 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 an hour. Weeds. We're an hour into the episode. <laughs> Let's talk about the rest of the episode. Um, yeah. Uh, Matchstick Matson. Yeah. This episode, <laughs> we kind of find out that Matson is a bit of a fugazi. Uh, he's wearing this gold jacket, which I love. Um, is it, do you think it's intentional that in this episode where a scorpion plays a big role, he looks like he's wearing the jacket from Drive? I think it might be like uh, you. You wrote that down. And I I couldn't stop laughing. I don't know if that I don't know if that occurred yeah. to anybody in the costuming <laughs> department because they the, it might have because uh, I'm sure that like that jacket has other sort of like hidden fashion meeting that I'm missing. Um, but I like that bit of costuming because of course he very much stands out. You know, like he's he's sort of party crashing. Like he was invited, but he wasn't expected <laughs> to come. Really, mm-hmm. um, the siblings certainly weren't expecting him, and so he really stands out even as he spends a lot of the episodes sort of stooping over because Skarsgård is so enormous, like bending his shoulders to try to like see people eye to eye, which is another sort of like parody of like political, you know, glad handing. He's very much, you know, making the rounds, shaking hands, kissing babies, if there were any babies at this party. Um, but, you know, he's, he's fool's gold. <laughs> you know, there's revelations in this episode from Ebba that not only is his coding genius a facade, uh, but his business prowess is as well. You know, with this revelation that they've been faking their subscriber numbers in India, India being a country that has, I, I think, just overtook China's like the world's largest population. So yeah. the fact that he says their subscriber numbers are like if you had two Indias, uh, that's quite a large <laughs> margin that they're overstating things by. Um, and yeah. that would be the kind of thing that would significantly drive up their own valuation that would constitute fraud. Um, and that would give Kendall a wedge to uh, actually, as he says, you know, go reverse Viking. But there's also all these themes in the episode, as we've talked about, with the notion that the two parties are kind of the same at the bottom. And there's a bit of mirroring happening with the Gojo and Waystar parallels as well, or specifically like the Gojo execs with the Roys. You know, yeah. uh, you know, Kendall himself, obviously, in the last episode, just did a bit of fraudulent stock pumping. And, you know, Matson harassing Ebba has a nearby model in Jerry blackmailing Roman with her archive of dick pics. You know, there's just, there's all, there's all these, there are all these neat resonances uh, that I quite like because it's not, they don't put too fine a point on it. And it gives the actors a lot of fun stuff to play with, I thought, in this episode. There's a lot of really good um, acting from Skarsgård and from these other actors in in the Gojo camp as well. Yeah, that Skarsgård jacket, just real quick, it's a, it's an Asian brand out of Tokyo called Needles, and it's not a particularly expensive jacket. It's only a few hundred dollars versus Kendall's uh, $7,000 Tom Ford jacket in this episode. And uh, Skarsgård said that he wanted something eccentric and crazy because the Roys are always so understated, classy, downplayed, expensive, but no logos, nothing ostentatious because it's tacky. So he wanted to give that a big fuck you. Also, knowing everyone else in the room would be sycophants and vultures running around the Roys, it'd be fun to come in like a sore thumb. Um, he's also uh, wearing Kyrie Irving Infinity basketball shoes, which is very, very smart. Yeah, uh, Kyrie Irving is is a professional basketball player who, at this time, was um, on the Brooklyn Nets, and he has, um, you know come under fire in in the last year for his politics. He has these sort of weird. Uh, right-leaning black Israelite uh, sort of anti-Semitic comments that he's made and that he's caught heat for. And so it was very funny that uh, Masson was wearing those shoes both, um, you know, because it's, it's, it's sort of a reflection of his politics, but also uh, the, the digs he takes at New York at the end um, 
you know, it's just sort of funny that he's wearing <laughs> the sneakers from from Kyrie Irving. But yeah, Kendall handled that surprise arrival pretty well. Um, I like when he tells his sibling, or he tells Shiv, really, there's there's too much peanut butter between us. Can you <laughs> be the one to like be on him? Um, but yeah, the fact that he's a fraud ultimately is is like one of those things that comes with no surprise and has, you know, some very very uh, striking real world parallels. I mean, I immediately thought of Elon. You know, when Ebba says um, that, you know, he just uh, basically like you know, was given this code and took it to market. Um, you know, it's similar. A lot of people think Elon, like, is an engineer who invented the technology behind Tesla and SpaceX. And he didn't. He just was, like, in the right investor round and, um, you know, just made correct moves in terms of his leadership. Um, but he doesn't actually have any of those skills. So, um, yeah, I, I think, you know, the the show wrote Matson with like a lot of restraint to the point that the whole storyline was maybe wobbly to us at some point, but over the course of a, you know, a full season and it's now been a full season, we first meet him in too much birthday where Maddie was also with us. <laughs> now it's episode seven again. Um, but I think it's really paid off. Like he's really, really earned his right to be there. I mean, Matson, yes, to some extent, but Skarsgård for sure. Um, you know, we weren't really sure about the, the movie star, but he was great. <laughs> in this episode and he just keeps getting better i think yeah i mean when he first appeared in too much birthday i think i voiced some skepticism on the podcast at that time just because i hadn't really seen him be convincing i thought in like a comedic role at that point and i wasn't sure how well he would fit in in this world yeah i mean he's really come to play since then like i think he's really he's been given a lot more time i think and a lot more space to do that than a lot of other guest stars have we've talked about a lot of guest stars coming in and kind of you know, not necessarily making a huge impression, mostly because the narrative treats them as disposable in a way that right. that Matson is clearly not. But I, I loved the way that he uses his physicality in this episode. Like again, all this all the weird slouching, the way he's sprawling the on the couch. Why does he the do way that? he gets so excited <laughs> in that coat room scene with Shiv when he's clapping, going like bang, 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 things like that. Yeah. Those gestures, the way he plays in particular with Eileen Harbo as Eppa, um, and they're like very fucked up dynamic. It's just great acting and like yeah i'm fully i love this guy at this point it was, it was a fantastic performance just real quick i i think about this all the time gabby but like on the elon thing definitely don't want to get sidebarred with elon but i think all the time about how when stephen colbert started his late show musk was one of like his first week guests and was introduced as being like the modern day thomas edison and i was like oh my god and i was like i think that's actually true <laughs> but not in the way that you mean it right yeah Colbert can't actually not <laughs> know the truth about Musk. Well, I don't know. by I mean, now, I think. It's just, I mean, that was, a, that was a while ago at this point. That was like pre-Trump and everything. But I mean, I think about yeah. that so much. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot to get into here with Matson. Just like really quick, um, his conversation with Tom was very funny when <laughs> he asks Tom um, like what his management style is. And Tom is like in typical brown nose form. And he's like, well, which would you prefer? Uh, <laughs> and... Uh, yeah, I don't know. I just uh, that was that was a that was a funny conversation. I don't know if the two of them have ever had a one on one like that. Um, well, they had that very awkward some... sit down in uh, in Norway, right? Right, 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 right. The oh god, <laughs> is France gonna make it? Um, and then yeah, you know, he he sort of ribs here a little bit with like who's gonna keep this triple X in the divorce and stuff. So yeah, he he comes in kind of hot. Uh, it's interesting because Skarsgård does the boyishness so well, which is such a good foil to the Roys, who are all like constantly regressing to who they were as children, because that's what you do when you're around your parents and siblings. 
Um, yeah. So it often feels like a bunch of bunch of kids fighting in the sandbox. Like they right. really able to like reflect and foil and bounce off each other so well. Like when I was like, oh, he was just given this code. It's like, well, the Roys were just given this empire. Yeah, this is the most, I mean, this is obviously the weak, the most weakened that we, you know, see the character because we learn all this, uh, you know, uh, you know, cheating and cutting corners and, and, and whatnot that's, that has, uh, you know, created his, his empire. But yeah, very, very like childlike in this episode, you know, like, like Brendan was saying, the physicality um, and yeah, it's like these are all, even though he does in some ways kind of like fill the Logan spot, um, you know, these are all just little boys who were handed certain things. And it's funny because at some point in this episode, I don't remember exactly when uh, Matson calls himself self-made. Which is very funny. Um, we, I mean, we know he wasn't born into like Roy level wealth, but there is that mention of his dad killing himself in his BMW. So I imagine that, you know, he had some sort of leg up. Um, he didn't grow up poor. Uh, but yeah, I mean. Not snatched it's, from it's, nothing, presumably, to be the face of this operation. Right. So, you know, again, it's just, uh, it's interesting, you know, these fraudsters. Uh, <laughs> anybody real? <laughs> well, I like what you say about the boyishness, because one of the great moments for me is that very sheepish little kid grin he gives to Shiv after she calls him out about the, the faked metrics. He goes like, uh-huh, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And she, he asks her He's, to uh, fix it. Like, once again, she's stuck babysitting these children. Like, she wanted yeah, up yeah. here someone's really relevant. So it's like, can you just solve it for me? Like, oh, like, maybe that is one of the big I'm... failures for her. He calls it, it'll, it'll get lost in the deal dazzle. Yeah. Like, you know, like, you guys will just kind of, like, brush us under the rug because you're pieces of shit, too. And then we'll just pretend. And then next quarter, the numbers will match and it'll be fine. Um, very very yeah, magical like, thinking uh, the the interactions yeah. <laughs> between him and Shiv are some of my favorite scenes in this episode I mean uh, we're reminded you know when she pulls him into that uh, in another of the episodes sort of political nods she's literally like negotiating with him in a, in a, in a cloak room right like the senate <laughs> or something um, but uh, when she she's saying like what have you done for me lately and it's her time to like kind of ask for what she wants and you remember, oh it. yeah, Shiv is terrible <laughs> at this. She's so bad at negotiating, especially when he's just saying like, "What do you want?" And she's and she just like starts sweatily pitching herself. It's like, well, just just say a number or like say a job you she, want. Like, yeah. she's like, 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 listing like, her like, CV. Like a, like yeah. a one sentence answer. <laughs> like, stop giving a speech. And and as you say, it's like he's he kind of wants to be like mommied by her, right? And you see him like it's weird because like again, all the Freudian tendencies are very much present in this scene you can see him like almost get turned off as she's talking yes right like he actively. like he like he's yeah. like powering down he's like oh god I don't she says i'm hot i'm hot shit and i'm ready to go he's and like, like he's like yeah. i don't want to deal with it's this like a, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well again like um, almost like she's coming on to him too right like 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 presenting her like viability as a partner to him and he's like right. well actually i'm a little boy who's scared of fucking deep down that's why i send people my hair and my blood um <laughs> And there's also, again, as always on the show, and I think in this episode in particular, there's a lot of like position switching and like top bottom dynamics in this episode and in that scene in particular. It's like you know, uh, Matson wants to be a bottom, <laughs> and uh, he doesn't he doesn't <laughs> like when Shiv expects him to get on top. Yeah. So should we um go go to the Abba stuff because that's that's got pretty interesting here. 
I was very grateful that they put Ali Harpo to more use in this episode, what Charles referred to in our 405 discussion as that kind of like quivering intensity that she has is like very well felt here. But she also like, like she and Skarsgård really play off each other so well and they communicate because she we didn't see a ton of her in that episode. I think there was some stuff that got cut out, uh, was kind of implied in some interviews we read, but they convey a dynamic that is a bit more complex than what had been suggested as like a one-way sort of like harassing relationship like they obviously have like an actual history like this relationship has not been one way you know like the way that they very like testily say like lucas and ebba at each other Mm -hmm. um, very much suggests that like sort of like a a couple who has had these sorts of arguments many many times like she says like i've seen him cut your balls a thousand times it does get a bit boring um and the way that in that final confrontation between Matson and Kendall suddenly Ebba is sitting very close to him again in a in a position that suggests like a very weird twisted kind of intimacy she looks like you know a pet at his feet or something like she's on a very short leash um I thought that was just fascinating because there's so much suggested about that relationship like being like the sort of psychosexual hell that we know exists like in the way star ranks and in the Roy family as being kind of an echo of Tom and Shiv too. Yeah, the way he he talked to her from the start um to and about her in front of other people, it was pretty galling. Like uh it was an initial conversation with Oscar, her Shiv and Matson and Matson keeps saying, you know, oh, well this is my uh head of comms and she's socially anxious like and and he's kind of like uh, uh needling her about that about the fact that, like, you know, he's like, you don't need to apologize. He's he's bossing her around and uh, it, it, it veers on, on, you know, something slightly abusive, a um, little bit disturbing. But then, you know, there's also a way that their their fight in the uh, in the sitting room feels like some kind of like sick foreplay. Like, yeah, like the way that they they say each other's names, um, it kind of sounds like a long married couple who are, you know, like sort of fighting and and being passive aggressive towards each other at a dinner party and they're trying to like pump the brakes and tell each other like hey you know um but yeah it's obvious they have a pretty extensive history but also the fact that she was like so willing to tell kendall and roman about the india issue also suggests that um you know she's perhaps not afraid of him like we are or we assume she is um and she has you know her own way of exercising power in this relationship i mean when roman brings up like oh, is it the sending of stuff? Because she says that she's leaving. Um, You know, she practically laughs it off and is like, please, like, that's like the least of, you know, his problems. It, it, what what uh, what Robin says is the sending you of the whatnots, you know, like, as, yeah, like as, as, as he's saying that, it's like, are you, are you, are you getting the irony here, Robin? Are you, are you understanding yeah, what's happening? Yeah, it's so funny. Here? Yeah, and also, um, you know, Matson is, is, is so weirdly regressive, like, you know, especially for a Swede, I know I'm not going to, I'm not trying to like, uh, you know, to, to, to valorize all of Scandinavia and say that it's some sort of like socialist paradise. I know it's not, but, but he's, you know, for his age, he's, he's, he's homophobic. Um, so there's that, like, okay, we lost Logan, but you know, we, we got another homophobic guy to, to take that spot. Um, you know, and I've been thinking about it for a little bit, especially when we met the team that there's, you know, I don't want to use this term lightly, but there is this sort of like eugenics energy to these Swedes um you know the first thing that I thought of was the way that he talks about 
the C-suite and, and, and older people, you know, on the mountain, he asks if he would have to talk to one of the old ones. In 404, Oscar asks the kids on the phone if they can send one of their old people. Um, just like their general contempt for the older, schlubbier way stars throughout Kill List and then putting them all on, on the Kill List. The Holocaust stuff, obviously. The women stuff. Um, I guess none of this is a secret, but, um, you know, it, it, it sort of maybe reflects like some of this, this mismatch that Kendall has flagged, even though it's, it's a very fine line because of, of the kind of company Waystar is, but, but it's a mismatch for, for, I think what Kendall, um, in his, you know, megalomania, what, what he imagines, um, the culture, the, the, you know, his his take on a waste all culture to be, you know, like Matson is a, you know, he's kind of a sicko and, and he's, he's weakened in this episode and his personal character, you know, and flaws come to light in a different way. But he also knows unhappy families when he sees them and he can see these people for who they are, uh, that they're fucked up and that they're susceptible to manipulation and flopping. I mean, he calls them the fail sons. Is this, is this the first time officially succession has used a uh, fail son? Yeah. It's a little bit on because the nose. Yeah, and then at the end, <laughs> after like uh, the blow up when he when and Connor's leaving and, and he says "cool, cool family," <laughs> it was very very funny. Um, so so you know they're both reading each other here. I think for filth and 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 some of that came out in the uh, you know Kendall Masson fight, but we can, we can talk about that. I think it um later. goes back to your earlier point, Gabby, about being too explicit about your views. Like, what is Living Plus? But eugenics what is atn but racism and homophobia mm -hmm. and nazism yeah um but right. you know but they all know that's why people like the roys are not tom like well you know they don't really feel that way they're not saying this they're just making money off of it well matson will say it explicitly yeah. and that is the problem yeah and he has he has no problem with yeah. it like he, he doesn't seem to have any sort of uh social filter i mean and he does he has said over and over again that he doesn't he's not really good with people he doesn't really know how to relate to people there is maybe a sense that, um, you know, perhaps he's like on the autism spectrum or something like that. This is the second time that he's made that sort of like homophobic voice. Um, he did it again. He said like living plus to Shiv in like a very, you know, in a, in a way that that felt like he was being homophobic. So, uh, yeah, shout out to Kendall for that. <laughs> That, that's a little what an ally. man. <laughs> but it's it's true. Like, who says that your numbers are gay? I don't even know what he meant by it's that. Very... Yeah, talk about talk about expressively inarticulate, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. I'm sure you've seen where, like, for my generation, when we were kids, calling someone gay was always bad, um, like a slur. Right. And then now the jokes are like, but now calling something gay is good. So like that 180. So it's like Matson's going back to yeah. similar kind of schoolyard taunts. It's like, well, your numbers are gay. Like mm -hmm. what an absurd, meaningless insult. Yeah. <laughs> I thought uh, when he called the older way stars, the old ones, that that was a Lovecraft reference. Maybe. Oh, I don't know. I don't. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not familiar <laughs> with that IP. <laughs> <laughs> But it was a fun, I, I liked that fun fight. Maybe we can, we can just wrap that up. Um, it felt like a good culmination of like the cultural tensions and one upping that, you know, has been established between the two camps uh, since, since they've met. And, you know, these are like the principal representatives at the moment. Kendall in this episode is kind of feeling like Logan's replacement, even if he's, you know, not quite, <laughs> not quite, ha doesn't quite have the chops, but it's like, yeah, there's like this foreign new money tech guy shitting on, of a wounded New York City 
Um, and then, you know, Ken is like the legacy, you know, New York guy who listens to New York rap and is, you know, like defending uh, the big city's honor. And, and they both make points. Um, you know, like I said, Madsen looking down, calling it Legoland was pretty funny, especially if, if we're talking about like a post-COVID Manhattan and especially those parts of Manhattan where the uber rich live. And like we were talking about <laughs> so many of the, the penthouses and buildings surrounding them are just yeah, empty. Or they, or they don't live um, there quite pointedly. Yeah. Right. They don't live there. So um, and also earlier in the episode, the, the Zoom firings made me think about COVID a little bit. I know I'm going off track, but. The show has, you know, handled COVID so well that is, you know, not at all. But it, it still has kind of like situated itself to these like post-COVID realities, like the drop off of, of travel episodes from season two to season three, it, you know, kind of changed the trajectory of the show. But um, yeah, like a mass and shitting on a on a post-COVID New York makes a lot of sense for a guy like him. What, 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 are, the, what are the cities that he brings up? Singapore that, and Seoul. Not, not, yeah. Seoul, yeah, Singapore and Seoul. Yeah, yeah it was. I, I like the bit where he says, you know, nothing happens here that doesn't happen everywhere, mm-hmm. right? Like, it, as you say, Gabby, it, it speaks to the cultural tensions that have been teased out, but it also quite well ties into the episode's themes of the political conflict that is imminent or the, the cataclysm that's about to happen, right? Yeah. Like a big source of the security and the complacency in this episode is the idea of American exceptionalism and the idea that there is something different and secure and sacred about our quote unquote democratic process. Uh, so the idea that that could be actually imperiled, you know, and that we could end up like, Ooh, like one of these other like ooh third world dictatorships or something like that would be, you know, unthinkable to these people at this point. Right. Um, yeah. And uh, I, I think, I think that line, nothing happens here that doesn't happen everywhere is, I think that's a pretty, pretty spooky, like chilling line when you think about, you know, what it suggests about, you know, the the world's problems becoming America's problems. Yeah. Right? Yeah, it's true. And yeah, it's, it's a good little back and forth. The two of them have, uh, you know, sort of veiled threats about what they know about each other. Um, and, and then he comes down and they, you know, they give, give each other a big hug and, you know, the European kiss. Um, it, it, it was fun. It was a fun little bit there. And, and um very, very curious to see what happens. They're building up this mess and stuff quite well. So should we kick it to the standout scenes? I think we covered everything. Yeah, I was the... going to stay on the Kendall thread. I mean, I'm sure Kendall, sure. with his uh, Christ delusions, he loves the idea of kissing, uh, kissing Judas, right? I'm sure, he, I'm, sure he, I'm sure he loves thinking of himself that way. Great Kendall episode. Great episode for Dark Kendall. It starts out with that scene with him and Rava, which I think uh, we need to talk about because it frames a lot of the episode or informs it. it. It's a little bit awkwardly, I felt, pasted into this episode. Like, there's a very abrupt smash cut from that scene to the opening credits. Yeah. Um, but, you know, we have been wondering, like, hey, what what is going on with Kendall's kids all this time? It was like, the season's been on a very compressed time frame so far, so maybe it's fine. We haven't seen them. But, you know, we didn't see very much of them in season three. And obviously the extra textual reason for this is that it's been like six, seven years since they filmed the pilot. The kids look like insanely different now. Like we saw a glimpse of Iverson yeah. where it's like, oh, his voice has had, changed and everything. The end of last season. In the last yeah. season. Yeah. So I'm sure like obviously like just like practical terms, it's like they're kind of reluctant to show those actors again without recasting them or something. Um, and the show sticks pretty closely to its hermetic world. 
Um, but it was important, I think, to see Rava again. Great to see Natalie Gold again. And to get those couple of details that, you know, that Ken is becoming an absentee father, the way that Rava says, call your daughter, and that Ken takes specific affront to that seems to confirm that he is actually not very present in their lives these days. And well, it's insane when he says the thing about, like, where were you? Why was our daughter out on the street? Yeah, like, it's hilarious. She, yeah. She, it's, it's Manhattan, <sighs> and you, you have a teenage girl. Like, like, what? What are you talking about? The way he framed it was, like, she's out on the street. Like, she's, like, in... You know, she's, she's, uh... Well, Ken never goes anywhere without his entourage. <laughs> He's never Remy on the street. <laughs> right? Yeah, and they, yeah, and of course, and these char- these characters are never on the street, right? They're always just being shuttled between cars and high-rises, right? Yeah, it was interesting that he met her here, just, like, outside of a coffee shop. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, and... Quick, quick little drop-off, yeah. Yep, at Birch Coffee, looks like a nice spot. But the other piece <laughs> that we got was that you know, his daughter is experiencing harassment that seems to be tied in some way either to her father's position at ATN or just to the general sort of worsening political climate. And Sophie being non-white means that she's sort of uniquely vulnerable as both a girl in school and a non-white person. That means that she's a lot more susceptible to whatever sort of like changing climate is happening. And her father's wealth is not just a way to protect her it's also you know it also makes her a target in a sense um and those consequences of the character's actions starting to crack through their sphere is an important way i think to frame this episode it makes the like sort of chummy backstage schmoozing a bit more sinister you know the way that ken tells nate you know we can do a major reset of the dialogue which i am like personally invested in or whatever, it feels a right. lot more, it, it feels very cheap the way he says that, you know, because like he's, because he's, he's kind of thinking about Sophie in that sense, but he's also thinking of like, well, this is how I'm going to, you know, like protect my children is by a reset of the dialogue, whatever that means. I also really liked that Rava said that uh, Sophie being bullied felt racially tinged. She's talking like a, like a Times headline or something. Yeah, very uh, liberal white woman with a, a person of color child energy although she does call atn a flat-out racist news organization and attributes it you know to ken so that's something to her credit you know like i i have sort of like a pet obsession with like what's going on with kendall's family so i get annoyed because i'm like why weren't his kids at the wake why weren't they at their uncle's wedding like this doesn't make sense you know i understand that like you know the actors have 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 grown and maybe there's not such a place for them but um, they were around before, and I just, I just don't get it. Like, you know, and, and I thought maybe we'd get some information here as to, like, what's going on. Like, maybe Rava freaked out after the Italy near-suicide incident and told Ken to take a break from seeing the kids. But if not, then, like, why haven't they spent any time together? Um, I, I just don't get it. But, um, you know, maybe I just have to accept it and move on. Um, but I do think the Sophie and, and like, the Ravenhead guy, which is apparently, that's what happened. Some guy in a Ravenhead shirt said something to her. It does raise like this very important question about the next generation and, um, you know, succession doesn't really deal with Kendall's kids or kids at all. I think that's that's for the best that kids are not really on the show. But yeah, like uh, this is a different world and um, Kendall's kids are being raised in sort of a, a, a insular kind of like liberal Manhattan milieu and, and this stuff is going to come up. And it's going to get harder for them as they get older. And it's very, very interesting that um, <laughs> Kendall's response to it is basically like, I, I, you know, 
I'm saving their lives I'm by, you know, by doing what I'm doing. I'm saving the world. And it's something that he, you know, that, that Logan has said, um, but it's something that Kendall also said to Rava after, um, you know, the, the, the crew's blow up at the end of season two when he, when he gets to her apartment in season three he's like you know i, I kind of did this for you guys so again just like this delusion of of uh kendall thinking that he's a good father because he you know he, he thinks so highly of, of the work that he does and who he is and because he provides them with you know a lot of money sure that's good but um you know i think there's something just like very very upsetting about how how absent he is so I think Connor insisted on a child-free wedding. Um, right? Okay, that makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair. I mean, am I wrong? Did they think he's a doting uncle? I don't. I don't. I don't know what other children would yeah. be. He's there very fond. He's all... very fond of his <laughs> nephews and nieces. He was going to share the water rights with them. You know, right. they, yeah, they yeah. He likes bond, them. Maybe, yeah. maybe it was Willa. Yeah. Maybe Willa said no. Yeah, Willa, is a, <laughs> Willa is an R slash child-free. Definitely child-free wedding. <laughs> no. <laughs> Like, I don't know, is Ken afraid of being a more present father because, like, it's just fatherhood is inherently uncomfortable to him? I mean, we know that he got married and had kids at a pretty young age. Um, you know, maybe he did that to fill, you know, some hole in his heart. Um, but it seems like, you know, Logan was so present and so overbearing as a parent that maybe Ken thinks he's doing the right thing by staying away. Maybe he doesn't, you know, he won't cop to this or he doesn't really know it consciously, but... Um, he thinks that he's going to wound his children by being present in the way that Logan wounded him. So, you know, maybe he's just telling himself that that this is the best way to go about parenting. Um, you know, I don't know, um, but I believe he does love his kids and he thinks he loves his kids. I, and I just don't get why he ignores them. And, and this is maybe one plausible explanation for me. Well, I mean, the way you describe that, of course, like it's very intentional that this episode that that scene ends with him saying, he does everything for his children. Like it's a very direct parallel to Logan and the way you just describe yeah. all that Gabby. I mean, it sounds just like the way we've analyzed Logan in the past. You know, it's a great reason to have kids is they're a very convenient way to, to justify all of your behavior. A lot of psychotic yeah. destructive behavior gets justified in the name of protecting children in the world. Right. Specifically this sort of increasing right, right wing movement that they are benefiting from financially. Yeah, I wouldn't rule out either that the uh, the tragic death of Megathump last season caused a, a fissure oh, in the family. <laughs> yeah, I mean, even last season he was like FaceTiming them a little bit, calling. I don't, I don't know, I don't know. Um, anyway, Kendall, deadbeat dad. You hate to see it, but at least you know if they have a mother who's involved. Um, Ish. Something. Rava seemed kind of <laughs> hazy on those details. <laughs> well. I like to think she is just you know, for the sake of the kids, but um, yeah. So I, I hope that's not the last time we see Natalie Gold, but I'm afraid it might be. Um, well, yeah. I'm, well, I'm sure the kids will be at the funeral. I mean, the funeral will be a great opportunity for tons of cameos and returning characters true, and true, stuff. True. I don't know if we want to talk briefly about Nate again at all. I said I would be more conciliatory towards this character on this episode. I mean, like, I don't have a ton that's like super negative to say, but I don't know. I was, I, I did not really feel like they did more than kind of pull this character out of mothballs for plot reasons. Um, you know, like he serves a symbolic function in the plot, as we've discussed. Um, they mention again, as had been previously referenced in, I think in prenuptial in season one, that he and Kendall had been friends in Shanghai. I think they said it's at one point. 
Um, I did not really feel like... That's what Shiv says, yeah. Yeah, I did not really feel but, like those but, actors conveyed a sense of, like, a really close personal history. Um, you know, so, I mean, like, there's a plot reason for him to be there, but, you know, I can't say that this was, like, you know, a great sort of, like, redemption tour for, for Nate Safrelli, So Yeah, I mean, their friendship, obviously, they were trying to to make it more salient than it, than it has been. It doesn't carry the weight of, like, a Stewie friendship which has been developed but i thought this was pretty well acted um and there was like some physical chemistry between them plus you gotta love like the classic ken getting rejected at the end um when he's like we can make prime time safe for you and 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 nate very seriously is like i'm not comfortable with the tenor of this conversation and kendall is like so wounded by that he's like don't play hall hall monitor with me bro i know you there was definitely um, there was definitely a thread where they were kind of laying on the queer baiting in this episode a little bit you know like obviously well yeah and then the the, kid going that's 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 kind of homophobic and then like yeah the way that they block that scene where strong and zuckerman are like very like close to each other in this like very narrow corridor i was like this is that's a little weird and he's like, yeah, oh god. And then he like kind of groans, and he's like, I forgot how much you try, how hard you try and get laid at a party. <laughs> so like, they're they're trying to insinuate that there's some history there that they've hung out and stuff. But yeah, I mean, it's not doesn't really. It's a fun thing for yeah. the actors to play. I'm not real. I'm not sure that it really sold beyond like, yeah, Ken having some some fun experimental history. He does have that line, um, you know, I'm not Gil, you're not Logan. That's a good thing. I don't really understand the I'm not Gil part, but again, it's just like another person from Kendall's past coming in to be like, you know. Well, Gil was the one who who struck a deal with Logan, right? You know, so, so in this so in the, the show's he's, world, he's yeah. somebody who kind of compromised on his ideals. Right, you know? right, right, right. That makes sense. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, I thought the I thought the performance was really good. It's nice to see someone from another person from Kendall's past who's like, actually, you're a whole person who has value and I'm more interested in what you do now that you're under your father's shadow, but how impossible it is for any of the kids to do anything, but try to be Logan. Like he was saying, like, you're right. not lo- like literally that's a good thing. They don't want to hear yeah, it. But they're like, how dare <laughs> yeah. you? What do you mean? I'm not Logan. Right. Like a lot of people are yes. very glad Logan's dead, but the kids just yeah. cannot see that. I mean, I think, I think, I think even Kendall's glad Logan's dead. He just, he, he wants to, yeah. him, you know, <laughs> like, it, clear, it cleared space for him, yeah. I thought it was so compelling, that scene with him and Frank, where he pulls him again into the into the coat room, oh. the cloak room, <laughs> yes. and, he, uh, and, he, and he makes his pitch. And, like, I, I was so struck by, like, the way that uh, Strong's face was very, like, it looked very, like, he's, like, he's very unshaven. Uh, he lo- is, it's kind of cast in shadow. He says, the, yeah. he has, <laughs> it's, it's a great barrage of Kendall-like euphemisms. I love the way that he says, what if we run it all the way back? And Frank's like, do I even want to know what that means? Because like, it's, it has no, it has no idea what he means by that. And of course, he can't stop himself from like throwing off two more euphemisms before he actually says what he means. He's like, "We pillage your village. We can reverse Viking." It's like, Kendall, tell me what you mean. Frank turning into like the real life like Breaking Bad Jesse. What the fuck are you talking about? Meme. Uh, but- Frank was so funny here when Kendall comes in. He's like, "I don't know about Gojo," and he's like, "La la 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 la." I don't want to hear it, Ken. Um, I just I love these two dynamic and and um, yeah, it reminded me a little bit, you know, yeah, throwback of vote of no confidence. I love it. Full, full circle because Frank was the first person that Kendall went to for that. You know, he's his uh, um, harebrained scheme partner, like numero uno OG. So, um, yeah, it was uh, Frankie and Kenny. Great little scene. Yeah. Frankie and Kenny. Yeah. He calls them Frankie and Kenny. Like, yeah. like, like 
Uh, and a little buddy buddy comedy. Yeah, we love the dynamic, but yeah, we do have to remember the last time they <laughs> teamed up, they both lost their jobs. Um, <laughs> but yeah, there's that great got him back. Great, li- I love the line where he says, "One head, one crown." Like that's so like great megalomania Shakespearean. It's like yeah, that Richard the Third shit. It's right there. Also, also saying I when Frank asks about Jiv and Rome, he's like, "Well, you know." I love my siblings. I'm not in love with them. Again, showing that like <laughs> these two cannot rely on Kendall. Um, yeah, I mean know. that 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 bit of the siblings talking at the end of the episode felt quite desolate to me. Like, obviously, their sort of bond has been fracturing all season, but that was that was the one where well, they were so close at the end of episode three. Yeah, you know? yeah, it's like yeah. The hugs are the hugs are getting more and more remote. The, yeah, yeah, the, yeah. The final conversation, and it's not yeah. like anything has like openly splintered. Like they're still maintaining this facade of like we're a united front, but all of them are sort of running their own games separately. Exactly, like Shiv yeah. has just had this obviously like incredibly devastating argument, and her like plot that she was running behind the scenes has completely fallen apart. And Kendall ha- is secretly plotting to take the whole thing for himself. And Roman, Roman really needs a W. Oh my God, because because uh, oh, he spends most of it's not going because well. he spends most of the episode in one of the funniest Connor subplots I think there's ever been. When he they're trying oh, they're trying to get Connor. The Mechan campaign wants Connor to drop out of the race because they're worried that he's, you know, he's surging in Alaska, you know, 6%. Um, you know, they're worried that his, like, small share of the vote could be, like, a spoiler territory, and he's going right. to hand the election to Jimenez. So if he drops out, can they pick up his voters? And that'll actually make the difference in some of these close uh, swing states. Swing states being a wonderful um, American concept. It's a great innovation that we have. Um <laughs> God, yeah, so sorry if you're not familiar with the, our electoral the, system the, and you look at the it genius up, of um, the founders. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> everything comes. Well, down you to know, the, they weren't wrong. We have to defer to everything lunch, they yeah. said. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, this was so so funny. I, I, we missed Ruck last episode. It's like they're they're either gonna give us Carl or Connor. Um, for that soul's like amazing. Like they threw in some some sprinkles moments. of Max and Pierce too. We got the return of Max and Pierce. Who's re- he's so referring funny. to he's Connor such a as my liege. Partner. My liege. Easy, my liege. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, just, just some of the lines there, like uh, when, when they're going through all the countries, like um, when he says, I'm not so sure about the slows. Like, th- that's a line that like... I'm a no on the Ruck, slows, yeah. <laughs> that Ruck, that Ruck make, makes good. Like, it, it's a fine line, but like, it's, it's his delivery that just like, it, it, you know, I, I don't know. He, he just has... I just thought it was great because because they, they've done this plot before, like in Veep, this was a subplot, and you know when they're they're trying to like bribe some nobody congressman with an ambassadorial position, but like trying not to give him one that's like too important because the guy is a freak. Um, right. And so, that's, and so the the first offer they make to Cotter is Somalia. Like, how did you think he would go for Somalia? Like that? In what world is that a prize? Like that's you. You make that offer to somebody who owes you a favor, like not the other way around. I love the line about I yeah, don't want to go anywhere without nukes. Yeah, I would yeah, be I'd yeah. be insulted if you sent me somewhere without news. Like that's not high stakes enough. It's so funny because, like, uh, it, you know, it also speaks to just like how kind of unserious Connor's presidential run really is. That he'd be willing to like give it up for a, a really good State Department gig. Um, yeah, like these gift ambassadorships are so hilarious. It's it's you know there are great examples in any actual uh, presidential U.S. presidential administration of of these 
patronages and um yeah connor's totally down to settle for one and and it's you know just a little glimpse into to u.s jam diplomacy and and, and on theme with uh, the you know sort of the overarching points about elite politics at this level are sort of just you know schemes and favors and maneuvers and you know, everybody's out to protect capital i mean diplomacy is you know, yeah here it's, uh, here in chicago i'm very much mindful of our former mayor rahm emanuel the current united states ambassador to japan you know anybody who's spent any time with Ram or like knows oh, knows anything about Ram would be like, is that somebody you want like in a diplomatic role? Like, is that the best function for that guy? But you know, I love do I like know? Uh, the Callista Gingrich and Newt Gingrich. Those are the Vatican because uh, that's because that's totally yeah, a place. They're constantly because that's totally a place you send like the freaks, right? Those <laughs> the Vatican constantly in Italy. It's so funny. Anyway, uh, yeah, I don't want to get too into <laughs> the U.S. politics, but um, this was so funny. The 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 poor man's. Saudi Arabia, rich man's Yemen. I mean, I, I screamed. I was laughing so hard. I love that Connor has this like pet like interest in, in geopolitics and politics in general because sometimes he'll just like whip stuff out like that. That uh, yeah. You know. Well, and I mean the yeah. in the conversation with Willa when he says I have to see what my woman thinks about Oman. And the funniest <laughs> line of the episode is when Willa says, "Is the compound going to be above ground?" Um, <laughs> Or <laughs> <laughs> she thought they were going to be like in a super villain lair, like under underground yeah. or something like that. I mean, they will be just above ground. Um, but the <laughs> but like that she's like googling things about Oman on her phone. It's like the Sultan's word has the word has the yeah. force of law. She he, and Connor's like, yeah, at the airport we can just walk right through. Like he's just spitting it as like, oh yeah, these are fun perks. <laughs> he's so gleeful about the perks. Like he just he just wants perks. You know, he wants the perks. Um, I think um, his yeah, but... surge politically is really interesting because in a lot of ways, he always should have been like the ironic candidate because a vote for Mencken is a vote for the Roys. But now you have an actual Roy to vote for. So I could see not that black pill people vote, but a more like edgelord ironic contingent. Like I, when Matson's like, you've got my vote. Yeah. He's like, yeah, if Matson could vote in America. He would vote for Connor Roy. Yeah, no, and it's true that if Connor drops out, I mean, I think most of his votes yeah. would go to Mencken. I don't. You know, who the hell is <laughs> going to vote for a Democrat who, I, I don't know. Anyway, again, I don't yeah. want to get too into this, but. um. Well, the con yeah, heads are like, out there um, making gifts and memes, at least. We've seen that. They they <laughs> do have, they, they, they do have a, a, a meme force out there. Yeah. And then there, <laughs> there's, there's one final um, important Connor interaction with Roman, but I don't know if we want to talk about roman and jerry first and just roman's general uh yeah because you know. i mean the big theme in this episode obviously because he fails to uh get connor to drop out of the race the theme is just that roman can't close and he's looking for a win the whole episode in the one of in one of the opening scenes where the siblings are together for breakfast at john george um he's kind of like sheepishly apologizing to kendall for you know the wibble wobble uh for backing out the of the presentation wobble, yeah. you know he feels he feels very embarrassed by that, as we saw at the end of the previous episode. And he's hoping that he can make the Jerry situation better. He's asking Frank, like, oh, did you fix things with Jerry? And he's like, no, she's very angry. And they have that conversation yeah. <laughs> at the bar where he's trying to, like, joke and, like, apologize in the way that he knows how, which is just, like, by not apologizing, but by saying, oh, it was a joke. Come on. This is our dynamic or whatever, right? Dad did this all the time. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But <laughs> You're not your dad. <laughs> but Jerry is, like, she's totally out. Like, she wants a huge exit package. She's out. And uh, she's going to blackmail Roman uh, to get what she wants. Um, so I don't really know what the future for that relationship is. I mean, potentially something could happen to bring Jerry back into the fold in the next few episodes. But, yeah, it really looks like it's really looks dead no very bad and you can see 
Roman in that moment when she walks away and he kind of is like drumming his fingers on the bar and he 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 makes that face where uh you know that Tolkien sometimes makes when he's he's uh distressed and he's about to displace all of his distress onto somebody else and that's when he walks over to Connor and starts you know berating him about about dropping out and he gets a little a little harsh with it and Kendall has to kind of uh, come in and play dad for a second yeah he gets really spicy I mean like one of the nastiest lines in this episode one of the nastiest things I think Roman has ever said is when you know Willa is saying well you know Connor doesn't want to drop out anything could happen and Roman eventually says, tell your wife, so quote supportive. unquote, to shut the fuck quote up, unquote, yeah. cover her shoulders and pack a fucking bag to Oman, which was very nasty. I mean, like very and, nasty, and, and, like, yeah. harsh misogynist vibe there. And I mean, the political sort of subtext there, like she needs to cover her shoulders because she's going to, to a Middle Eastern country. Right. Like that's like yeah. that's very grim. Like and, and with the tone of sort of fascist creep and. No, it's bad. Yeah, uh, it has a lot of unsettling implications. It's very way out of line, and I love the blocking there, where Roman is like leaning over to get in his face, and then Connor stands up, and of course he towers over Roman, and <laughs> Roman looks like, yeah. oh shit! All of a sudden, that's a that's a great little bit. Uh, but Connor has a Connor responds very well to it, just kind of like pushing his finger at Roman and saying, "Well, my wife doesn't think I'm a joke, so I'm going to do what she wants." Uh, another, 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 another very sweet, another very sweet Connor and Willa moment. If we forget all the immediate context about who Connor and Willa are, it's very sweet. Yeah, she's wearing um, <laughs> exactly. a very similar dress to what Catherine Deneuve wears at the end of Belle du Jour, um, <laughs> which is, uh, if you're not familiar, Catherine Deneuve plays a bored housewife who becomes a sex worker sport <laughs> on, on the side. So the opposite of Willa. Um, and that, anyway, and spoilers for this 50 year old movie. Um, but one of her clients becomes obsessed with her and like tracks down who she really is and then like tries to kill her husband and then her husband finds out she was a sex worker. So the movie ends with her in the very similar dress to what Willa is wearing, but taking care of like her catatonic husband, um, which is a very interesting choice for Willa to wear at this party. But you were also talking mad too about the way that, you know, Connor's small percentage actually gives him a way to like be the only person who kind of makes a difference in this political reality right yeah because i mean he's talked about wanting to be a disruptor but like if his small percentage is what upends an election literally he's a disruptor like that is a huge thing that is the most he could possibly do is take the election away from someone it can enter the ranks of history alongside ralph nader and jill stein which is what we all i mean we could all only hope to be remembered that way <laughs> or like susan sarandon God. But yeah, I think, I, you know, this was Roman sort of like a backseat in this episode. He's been pretty prominent in, in previous episodes, but you know, clearly he's not doing well. Clearly uh, the grief is getting a little bit more complex. You know, he lost his dad. He now lost his other big parental figure in Jerry. Like, seems like that is completely over. Like, she's not uh, amenable, to, <laughs> to use a term from the episode, at all to um, reconciliation with him. And that's really scary for Roman. I mean, I think they yeah, have think him set up as, you know, we know. It, the, 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 the election's next week. We Mencken's, yeah, he's, he's got, Mencken's boy. He's Mencken's boy. He's got this affinity with ATN, which his dad told him was where he belonged before he died. You know, if somebody, exactly. if there's somebody yeah. who's going to launch the nukes in the, in the next episode, it's going to be Roman. Because um, he's, he's the one who right. kind of needs to pull something drastic. He's Well, and Tom. Uh, there's also, a, it's, it's also a big, yeah, Tom. Yeah, Absolutely. Tom I'm very Tom, much w- Tom Tom and Tom and Roman, yeah, next next week could 
to completely destroy democracy. Two divorced dudes. I'm very much wondering if if they're gonna <laughs> if they're gonna zag on this again. It's gonna be another retired janitor situation where it's just furious farce at ATN. We'll see. But but it was a big uh, we'll it's a big elbow in the ribs to you know look out for this when uh they decide that Roman's gonna give the eulogy. Like that's obviously gonna be a huge yeah. set piece, right? Yeah. Again, whether it's going to be comic or tragic, we're not sure. But that's that's very interesting. It was interesting, yeah. Nobody put up a fight either. They were like, okay, no one, no one's even questioning what what he. Might I, well, say. they all they all kind of sense that Robin needs a project right now, right? So they, they, so <laughs> yeah. they give it to him. <laughs> he can write. He can he can all write right. the he can write the eulogy in his crayons. Oh, um, our last uh, last little thing was Greg. Yeah, Greg. We can we can we can save Greg for last. Yeah, I just thought uh, you know, the Zoom firing it was a rather gratuitous scene where we see sort of Greg and Tom who's doing the fake tears in the background at their nastiest. Um another instance I think of the show kind of backdoor psychologizing uh, a recognizable type, you know, we think about where Greg started off as and where he ends up as sort of an all too familiar presence of just the anonymous hr associate who gets to fire you on a remote call and then rather than take any feedback or risk any friction or blowback just gets to keep everybody muted and then end the call and say whew that's over with hard day at work time to go to a party then he perf- um, that was yeah. brutal but then Jeez. he performs to matson and co like he's collecting scalps when it's like truly the most like sterile removed firing he could possibly do like he's literally <laughs> like they're all on mute like he's, he's like uh the chat seems to be saying like completely isolated but um once again like i i the performance element where like trick power trickling down and like so he sees yeah. like tom imitate logan so he tries to imitate an imitation mm. um and just can't yeah, do it which yeah. i think and i was like why he's so funny well it's funny how he managed to impress the swedes i mean he walks into that situation and oscar is like oh fucking greg like yeah. <laughs> very very funny at this point almost an audience surrogate because i think people are getting fed up with greg um but yeah i mean i, I don't know greg is a sociopath like like, i know everyone talks about how everyone on this show is a sociopath but greg doesn't ever show any feelings at all and he loves being praised for doing horrible things and he says in that scene like you know yeah they they make me do it because i i look like i care but like you know i just i don't care um (laughs) well he's the one it's like all the other characters are at stations in their lives where they can remove themselves from actually having to do any dirty work whereas greg is still in this role where it's like if he wants to attain power he has to actually dirty his hands so he is given the most opportunities to do like sociopathic things he's happy to do it like they would all do this stuff if they had it to. doesn't it doesn't uh, bo- it doesn't bother him is the but crazy yeah it thing, is surprising right? that like yeah there is, there does seem to be like no <laughs> like all. moral rot whatsoever there's a sense of like oh there was just like nothing here to begin with right there's like nothing, his quote-unquote principles yeah. that he talked about when he joined atn when he called it a very toxic element in the culture like uh you know right. that that's really bothering him anymore and out right? of all of them no, like yeah. literally everyone i guess the main characters on the show he grew up with ewan as his grandfather so his whole life he would have heard how terrible atn is and he still went in and is still like, right he can he has no plausible yeah like he's I mean, and we don't know that much, but we know that he grew up like ostensibly kind of normal. Um, yeah, he had you know this family legacy, but but yeah, you would think he would internalize some of that from his grandpa. I mean, doesn't seem like he actively is like wants to lash out against him. I don't know, maybe maybe subconsciously or something. But it's very weird. But 
but I enjoyed this scene. It kind of reminded me of like um, Michael Sarah and Super Bad, like joining up with uh, all those guys in that room. Except, <laughs> I think, <laughs> I, I think. Shout I, out Jody Hill like, and Ben Best from our David Gordon Green yeah, episode. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. He's getting like teased at first and then they're all singing and like doing lines of coke by the end of the scene, except they're all just like sharing a vape here, which is so funny. It's like, again, just like the 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 lack of decadence in some ways that this show, um, you know, lays out is, is, is so funny. Just the contra, the like the, the triplex. It's like these guys are, you know, they're not indulging in like, you know, this a bunch of uh, delicious fare in terms of narcotics or food or anything. They're just like sharing a vape. Um, but I like when Madsen points at him, it's like not a good person. And Greg's kind of like, well, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I love- it made me think about the movie up in the air where it's like, at least George Clooney had to actually fly out to fire all those people. Yeah. Right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. I work for a big corporation and sporadically we'll get these like all hands on do- deck last minute, no subject line emails. We're all like flat mass layoff. And it's always like some executive suite raise. And it's like, why are you doing this to us? Like, please stop. Oh my God. Um, but I do that's love awful. that exchange that's like, you do what you have to do. And then Mattson goes, either, I think it's one of the suites goes like, do you? Yeah, yeah it's, it's like, Mattson. He's the one being like, yeah. do you yeah. have to do this? <laughs> if yeah. that guy is telling you, like, maybe you're not a good person. <laughs> like, maybe i don't know maybe maybe time for some self-reflection but greg is just um he's kind of an empty vessel yeah very much point. so yeah yeah my my sleep is not troubled by thoughts of greg's soul i don't i don't think that there's <laughs> a lot going on there he started as comic relief character has kind of remained in that zone so you know again not going to rule out that they find some plot function for him in these final episodes but i mean yeah it's obviously at this point it's like we're not expecting this actor or this character to do any dramatic lifting mm-hmm um, we have run insanely long. Does anybody have yeah. any final lines or notes <laughs> they want to say? What the what one little piece I I I like that we I don't think we mentioned was the bit where Ebba storms out of that room and uh, Lucas and, and and Oscar are going Ebba and Greg Ebba! <laughs> and Greg, uh, which because Greg is which there I guess is point. like supposed to be like a a, Stel- uh, a Stella reference from Streetcar, but I, my brain immediately went to the Flintstones and Wilma. <laughs> oh. <laughs> that's funny yeah i didn't even think about that yeah i just thought it's just like oh this is the way we torture our one female employee but she's an interesting character she's gonna be a wild card because she didn't she mention also something in, in the norway episode that she keeps like files of everything um it was sort of said in jest but oh, yeah that everything's like, gonna go like, in her memoir if they don't pay her off yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I just so. love the interplay between like a small nervy wiry woman and like a huge lunky goofball like scars guard like it's just it's such a great physical dynamic Anything for you, Gabby? Any standout lines? Um, we didn't talk about uh, Shiv and Nate's wine, but it's funny that he like tells the caterer not to tell people that it's Germanic or that it's biodynamic, which I think is how he describes it in the la- in the last season. And then this is this wine separates connoisseurs from the weekend Malbec morons. Shiv and, uh, Shiv and, Shiv and Tom's wine. Yeah, I like I like when he's when he <laughs> says to the caterer, "It's like actually, can you hide these so we can create like an artificial scarcity create thing?" <laughs> Scar- scarcity thing. <laughs> Yeah, uh, miss miss Tom in like hospitality mode. It's like when he's sometimes at his funniest. Mad? Anything we didn't get to for you? No, this is a uh, as always a great discussion. Well, it was awesome having yeah, you. Excellent. Anything you would like to to plug uh, for our listeners? Um, no, I've been spending the last four months relearning math, um, so I'm very boring. But uh, I'd really recommend everyone <laughs> uh, subscribe to Cinemascope Magazine. 
Yes. Yes. Cinemascope Magazine, uh, unofficial partner of the podcast. Uh, Spiritual partner. Pu- published, published so many great writers who have appeared on the show. And uh, hopefully we'll continue to do so uh, for many years in the future. Essential film publication. Uh, subscribe. It's cheap. It's a steal. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, read, uh, read writers like, like Madeline and like myself. Sometime. No, two luminaries. But uh, thank you so much for having me back, guys. I think whenever listening to you and your guests, um, I'm always so struck by like how you make me such a better watcher of the show and how enjoyable it is also to hear you talk about it. So uh, thanks for all that you've done. This has been a real pleasure. Thank you so much, Maddie. Oh, that's... It's been excellent. It's been... We were so happy to have you back. Thank you for saying that. <laughs> for the party episode. A... Egregiously yes. kind of you, Maddie. Yeah, <laughs> anytime. Anytime. All right. Uh, thanks, everybody, for listening. I want to say thanks again to our guest, Madeline Wall. Thanks to Gabby and to producer Dan Black. If you're enjoying the Roycast, please leave us a rating and a review on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your app of choice. You can also show your support with the contribution via the square link in our bio or just by spreading the good word about the podcast. We'll be back next week to discuss another new episode of Succession's final season. Until then, take care of yourselves. Goodbye. To work one morning down the path alongside the lake A tender-hearted woman saw a poor half-frozen snake His pretty colored skin had been all frosted with a dew Oh, well, she cried, I'll take you in and I'll take care of you Take me in, oh, tender woman Take me in, tender woman Sighed the snake Now she wrapped him up all cozy In a coverture of silk And then laid him by the fireside With some honey and some milk Now she hurried home from work that night As soon as she arrived she found that pretty snake she'd taken in had barely revived. Take me in, oh tender woman. Take me in for heaven's sake. Take me in, tender woman. Sigh the snake. Touched him to her bosom You're so beautiful, she cried But if I hadn't brought you in By now you might have died Now she stroked his pretty skin again And then kissed and held him tight But instead of saying thanks That snake gave her a vicious bite <laughs>